Jacks, pocket jacks, a strong hand if you're going heads up at Texas Hold'em poker. To be honest, right from the beginning, I was in over my head. You see, the night already had a run before this point. It started at the $1, $2 table with buy-ins between $100 and $200. I had done all right and made a run at that table. It wasn't enough. It never is. I wanted more and jumped up to play at this current table. I should have already called it quits. I was ahead, but as any gambler knows, there's nothing quite like making a big run at it. Taking my 10 stacks of big table would ultimately change my life for the next decade and much beyond. I first started playing Texas Hold'em poker when I was in grade 10. After watching the movie Rounders, some of my classmates and I started playing on a school trip to Strathcona Park on Vancouver Island. It was a retreat for the senior two classes to learn some outdoor life skills and classmate bonding. I loved it and was good at it, poker that is. I had started playing card games with my parents at a young age. My cousin, Suda, had taught me how to play chess, so I picked up strategy quite well. The retreat was also a memorable experience. In high school, getting away from the school with your classmates is an opportunity for feelings to spark and relationships to form spontaneously. While in high school, I was sent to a private school starting in grade 9 through to graduation. I was a poor kid in a rich kid's school. Not really, but it felt like that was the case. Don't get me wrong, my family was middle class. My parents were university educated. My mom has two masters and a PhD in education. My father studied engineering. The school had some of the richest kids in BC. I would imagine it was started by the former headmaster of St. George's in Vancouver, Alan Brown, a great headmaster, leader, visionary, but horrendous mathematics teacher. He was well past his teaching days. He destroyed my confidence in mathematics by his attempt to give advanced teachings to his new students. Math, being one of my best subjects, took a huge hit from his misadventures in our grade 9 and 10 math class. It was a world of relief when VW Vanagon driving outdoorsman British Mr. H came in as vice headmaster and lead mathematics teacher. He somehow restored my math ability after my father caused more damage discouraging me while trying to fix Mr. Brown's blunders in the classroom. Mr. H liked my custom t-shirt I got printed. It had a big VW symbol and the words, We be dubbin'. It was a nod to the Ice Cube hip-hop song, We be clubbin'. I liked the beat. When Mr. H read my shirt for the first time, he must have thought it was German. He read it as, Webe Dubin. I managed to keep a straight face and just nod and smile, as you would a fellow VW driver on the road. I had immense respect for this teacher. Mr. H used techniques like, No guts, no glory. K-I-S-S or keep it simple, stupid, and encourage the use of QED, quad erat demonstrandum, or which was to be demonstrated, all which seemed to somehow restore my confidence and faith in my intuition. Later, 
these would somehow find their way back to tie things together with profound meaning in my life. The vision was to build a new co-ed private school in South Surrey to cater to families outside Vancouver City looking for a top education for their children. Southridge School, where let every spirit soar, was the motto of the school. They truly did a wonderful job of living up to that motto, in my opinion. In those days, in its infancy, we all got along, generally speaking. The students, that is. There weren't any fights or major incidents, for the most part. There weren't locks on the lockers, though I did get a calculator stolen. I felt empowered at that school. The school would rise to the top of private, primary, secondary schools across BC and eventually the country. I, amongst 13 others, would go on to be the very first graduating class in 1999. Our class claiming all of its graduates to go on to post-secondary studies. It was an amazing school, as far as schools go. I would know. It was my seventh school upon arriving in grade nine. It certainly left a mark on me. And so I, naturally being the competitive type, took a lot of pride in beating these rich kids at poker, taking their money and also finding a source of income for myself. Maybe you could say this was my first form of independent income. On Friday nights, a common activity for most of the boys in my class and one or two from the grade below us was to gather at one of our houses just after dark and play poker till about 11 p.m. We didn't play for much money in those days. Maybe like a $5 buy-in and you could always rebuy. There was a lot of loose change involved. Guys would bring Ziplocs of quarters and loonies. We often played at Gibby's or Atan's house. More often than not, I walked away those nights up money. I had a no-fear mentality and a sneaky betting strategy that would lure others into the hand. I had an ability to feign weakness while actually being in a position of great strength. I felt like my family stuck out a bit in terms of wealth because we were clearly less well off. I was so embarrassed of my mom's 87 brown two-tone Plymouth Chrysler Horizon. I made sure to be one of the first students to arrive every morning so no one would see the form of transportation I was arriving in. For the ride home, I would stay late and play basketball till late to be one of the last to get picked up. In a school full of Benz, Audi, BMW, and Land Rovers, my father coming to pick me up in his 88 Buick Skylark after dark was actually a relief and less of an embarrassment as riding in my mom's horizon. No miss would tease me about the Omni rolling in, a sister model made by Dodge. I would correct him in embarrassment. It's a horizon, dude. 
When my parents moved from Newfoundland to BC in the mid-90s, they were coming from an economy that was facing a huge economic fallout from the Hibernia oil fiasco, as well as the collapse of the cod fishery and subsequent moratorium. My father was a mechanical engineer by training, and he focused on naval research, oceans and fisheries through R&D. The collapse of the economy resulted in us moving to the other coast. When they sold their house after living in Newfoundland for over a decade, after immigrating from Scotland, the house went on the market at maybe $15,000 more than they bought it a decade prior and ended selling for not much more. They didn't buy a house in BC right away. It took a year of house hunting before they would eventually settle on a house that happened to be a block away from my unfounded future high school. Moving to BC was difficult for my parents because the economy was hot. The housing prices at the time were much higher than the opposite coast. Upon arriving in South Surrey, I went to a small rural public school in the catchment area of our rental house. Halls Prairie had about one class for each grade. I was supposed to be in grade six at the time. After attending about the first week or so of school, I guess I complained to my parents it was too easy. They took my concerns to heart and approached the principal of the school. He suggested I switch to another school and enroll in French immersion, or gave me the option to skip grade six. I hadn't learned any French at that point, so the natural choice was to skip grade six. I moved into a split classroom with both grade seven students and grade six students as a grade seven student. Right away, I didn't fit in. It was my clothes, my hairstyle, my look. Grade seven students here were cool and stylish. The boys used hair gel and had brand name gear. Back on the east coast of Canada, grade seven would be in a different school altogether. Junior high school. Here, there was no junior high school. It was all secondary school from grades eight through 12. My clothes had been picked by my mom and I'd gotten some purple Nike Air Max that were picked up at the outlet store. I totally did not match the Mondetta, Converse, All-Stars, Doc Martin, Skater, Grunge look of the West Coast. I was tucking a collared shirt and parting my hair from the side as my father did and suggested I do. It was really enforced in grade seven. I learned how important cool was to fitting in. I had my first crush there. Her name was Anya. She was short, often wore a tube top under a long sleeve baggy shirt with fitted jeans. She wore white Chuck Taylor All-Stars. She had shoulder length curly blonde hair and blue eyes. She chewed gum a lot. For Valentine's Day, I bought a huge box of chocolates from London Drugs, wrapped them up and got a card. I gave it to her after school, just outside one of our classrooms. It was awkward as fuck. I leaned over. I even gave her a kiss on the cheek. Anya was adopted and had several stepbrothers and sisters. She was getting picked up by her stepbrother. After that, I ran and jumped on the bus. So embarrassing. Nothing came about it. I found myself unable to change the attire that was provided for me. 
but being cool and the effect clothing had on how people judged you emerged as an issue in my life. I found myself drawn to playing soccer with the grade sixes. I played with Ball and Nathan. I would get in a fight with Nathan. He wasn't cool. We were actually very similar. I could tell the other kids didn't like him. I pressured myself into not liking him because he wasn't cool enough. I couldn't be like this guy, I thought to myself. I stuck out at that school. There was no getting around it. But the grade six classmates seemed to accept my mismatched attire as it coordinated with theirs more succinctly. I hung out with Bo and Tommy in grade seven though. Bo was First Nations. His sister Coco was stunning. Tommy was the one Taiwanese kid at the school. He was really good at basketball. We played 21 or bump on the covered court. I joined the chess club and got to skip one class afternoon to play chess for an hour. It was fun. I was the best in the club. On one of the chess club trips, we went to a nearby school, Grandview Heights. I matched up with this kid named Tori, who would later study at UBC for a double engineering degree, becoming a lawyer and engineer for my first game. I decided to do what our chess club teacher had taught us, the four move checkmate, as I moved my bishop into position. I wondered if this kid would know about this move. I guess not. I moved my queen right up to his king, taking the pawn. Checkmate, I said. I heard laughter from Tori's classmate, Eli. You idiot, he beat you with that checkmate. He laughed at Tori. Tori was mixed too, maybe Japanese or Chinese and white. Eli was clearly the better chess player, as I would find out in the next match. It was a close game, but Eli would go on to win. Little did I know, Eli would enter into my life again on several separate occasions. The rental house we lived at was situated on a hobby farm on 172nd Street off 8th Avenue. We lived in the basement suite. The upstairs was occupied by an Italian-Canadian chief steward on Air Canada, Mario and Antoine, his son, who was two years older than me and attended the local high school, Earl Marriott. Antoine's mother lived in Montreal and he would visit her while we stayed at the rental house. He and I would hang out and play baseball or video games or just get up to no good on the property. The property was on 10 acres and had a couple ponds, cabins, several barns and warehouses that were rented out. Little Campbell River ran through the edge of the property. It was an amazing year on the property to be able to play and enjoy nature in a pristine part of BC, right next to the Washington state border. I went to the provincials in grade seven for chess. It was held at Prince Margaret Secondary in North Surrey, a rough area in the lower mainland, even at that time. I'm not sure why they held it there. Maybe it had to do with centrality and access. I was nervous. I had never been to a secondary school before. Those schools were huge. Once again, I would see Eli and Tori at the chess tournament. I would not go far in the tournament, losing to two opponents. 
one of them being Eli. Upon finishing at Halls Prairie that summer, my parents finally found a house at 2516, a couple streets over from 160th Street. It was a little unusual in a way, maybe destiny. Both my parents' birth dates together matched the address. I got picked up and dropped off by the school bus. I was now going to Earl Marriott Secondary, a large public school of 1,500 students from the South Surrey area. By then, I had an upgraded wardrobe and was starting to fit in more, except for that summer, I had gotten a bit chubby from a motionless summer. Earl Marriott was a different world. Kids smoked cigarettes directly across the street at the park. Some kids would get bullied. There was a kid that got picked on, Freeman. He was small, hadn't really filled out physically. I had heard he had been stuffed in a locker. I wondered, Freeman wasn't too much smaller than me. Could I be stuffed in a locker? After coming off summer overweight, I started getting knee problems in gym class during our field run. I went to a doctor and he diagnosed it as abnormal growth between the joints. Being cool became more of an issue. I didn't want to become a fat kid either. I remember going to math class for the first time. There was Eli from Grandview Heights sitting towards the front. Eli smiled at me as he recognized me from chess. I sat beside Eli and would continue to do so for a few classes, but I never really hung out with him. There was another couple of kids I hung out with at Earl Marriott, mostly in class. Before the end of the semester, I had stopped sitting next to Eli and moved to the back of the class next to a Noel. Noel is really cool. He played the trumpet. He had a pimply face, but he was pretty funny and laid back. He kept a low profile. I liked that. I had another friend named Dame, who I also became friends with in homeroom class. Dame liked to laugh, and I liked people who laugh. I remember sitting in homeroom one morning, and one of the kids, Neam, who often dressed in oversized black clothing and had a center part on his jaw-length orange hair, leaned over to me and said, Yo, you hear the news, man? No. I replied, I didn't pay attention to the news, so I was being totally truthful. Kurt Cobain died, man! He blurted out as if the first person to hear. Oh shit, that sucks, I replied, not knowing who he was referring to. From there, music entered my life as a way to be in the know and be cool. I bought the Green Day Dookie album at Costco. It was a really cool album. I started listening to the radio a bit. My friend Yoshi introduced me to the offspring, the Smash album. He gave me a pirated mixtape that I played continuously. I think we bonded over the music. Maybe it was the similarity in our fathers. Prior to those albums, my taste in music had just been what my parents exposed me to. ABBA, The Beatles, Gypsies, along with Sri Lankan Baila and Scottish Bagpipes were the standouts in my mind, I will say. If I was going into battle with anyone, it would include a Highland bagpipe and drum marching band on my side. The Scots always got the slack for wearing kilts, but the sounds of the bagpipes alone could intimidate a standing army. What was coming next? 
my father would always have country music from the radio on drives from St. John's back home to St. Thomas, Newfoundland. I have a distinct recollection of driving at sunset and night on the 30-minute ride home with country music playing in the background of my father's red Bronco 2. After I picked up the trombone, they did buy some jazz CDs, including some top trombonists. I lied. My first CD I bought was the Free Willy soundtrack. I know, that's embarrassing and soft as fuck. But I enjoyed the movie, and I thought the music was touching at the time. I was in concert band. The first movie I ever went to in the theater was The Jungle Book. You see, my parents weren't particularly appreciative of American culture. Being immigrants from the UK to Canada, they were attuned to British culture and thus only went as far to watch the CBC on TV. One time when I was trying to watch The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on the CBC, my father came into our small TV room behind the kitchen and asked me rhetorically, you're not watching that American garbage, are you? American culture was cool, I thought to myself. I wondered why my father didn't get it. It led me to hide what I was watching or not really let my parents see what I was watching or listening to for that matter. As an only child, you're always seeking approval from your parents. So when you come across something they don't approve of and you don't want to disappoint them, the only way to get around it is to hide what you don't want them to find out. I don't really know how it all started, but one day I walked up from my school during lunch break to the local mall. This was a pretty tiny mall in White Rock with a Save On Foods, owned by one of the richest men in BC. For whatever reason, that day I was dressed in an all black outfit wearing an oversized black jacket. I decided to shoplift two computer game magazines totaling a little over $12. I went into the book section and navigated through to the magazine aisle. From there, I pulled out two magazines I was interested in. I carried them down one empty aisle and pretended to be looking for something. When I was about midway down the aisle, I unzipped my jacket and stuffed the magazines into the top of my pants. I zipped up and proceeded to the exit. I got about halfway through the mall before I felt a secure hand around my shoulder. The mall security motioned for me to follow him. We went back to the book section of the supermarket. He started questioning me. I was in shock. I wasn't a bad kid. The security asked me to call my mother. I was petrified. I spoke to my mom on the phone and she said she was so disappointed. My heart sank. They let me go and didn't call the police. When I got back to school, I had to visit the vice principal. I don't know why I stole the magazines, I said. The truth is, I did know why. I didn't want to ask my parents for money. I was aware of their financial situation to a certain extent and overly concerned about it. Money was the source of my conceived inadequacies that manifested through the awareness of my differences with my peers. It was through our attire, which subsequently to me translated to coolness. The lead up 
that afternoon to my father arriving home was unbearable. When he arrived, I was berated by a verbose, foul, hurtful language. I can't remember how hard my father came down on me, but I know I deserved it. I felt like I had brought shame to my family. That wasn't the first time I was involved in theft or shoplifting, so to speak. The first time was in grade five while I attended St. Andrew's Elementary School in St. John's, Newfoundland. No one found out. Actually, I didn't steal anything, but I was an unwitting accomplice exposed to the art of the theft. It was springtime. The snow was melting off the ground. It was lunch break. I was with E. Scott. E. Scott was probably the toughest motherfucker at that school. He was a short, scrappy Newfoundlander. E. Scott always had dirty fingernails and swore a lot. If you want to be on anyone's side when something went down, it was his. E. Scott had defeated Elad. The giant in grade one who was known for bullying. Elad towered over the other grade one classmates by about a foot. During the time I was away in Asia for grade two and three, Elad had changed. He was now a friendly, dumb giant. I was scared of Elad in grade one. During lunch times in the winter, often we had to stay inside the classrooms. Perhaps it was too snowy or cold out. The boys would race to finish lunch and wait until 12.15 when we were allowed out of our seats. At that time, the bell would ring and students could play until 12.55. The boys would usually play hand hockey with a hacky sack or trade hockey cards or toss things around the room or fight in the classroom. There was a pecking order in the class based on toughness. At first was Eastcott. Nobody could take him down. Nobody tried. In at number two was Chad, who was a little taller, athletic, and left-handed. He always had cool sneakers. He had the super high-top Reebok pumps. Third spot fell between Chris and myself. The day I claimed third spot in the class was when I stood up for Ruddle. He was skinny, sickly skinny. He wore thick glasses and had thinning curly hair. This kid stood out in an awkward, sickly, sorry for him kind of way. I remember Chris was picking on Ruddle, just bullying stuff taunting him by snatching something of Ruddles and not giving it back. Chris was short and quick, a natural hockey player type. If you went to the ground with Chris, he would put you in a headlock and then start nailing on your head with his fist. I saw Chris do this move on Chad a couple of times, and Chad, being taller, was able to thwart Chris off. I had observed this and started to see Chris's weakness. He didn't have many moves. He was just quick, not necessarily strong. So this time, 
Chris decided to pick on Ruddle. Something snapped in me a little and I ended up stepping up for Ruddle. I pushed Chris away and gave Ruddle back his pencil case. Then Chris and I went at it. Knowing Chris's tactics, I immediately slipped my own headlock around him, but much tighter than his technique. I fell to the ground with his neck in my grip. I gave him a few shots of his own medicine to the head. I felt his body give in, and then I pushed off him. He came up red-faced, gasping a little. He got the message. Obviously, the rest of the class was watching and immediately I commanded the respect of Eastcott and Chad. Chad knew that he may have to contend with me next, and Eastcott gave me respect because he knew Chris had weak moves. So one lunch, Eastcott comes up to me when we're outside on lunch break and tells me to follow him. We scale up the back hillside the school sits below just above the parking lot to the left. As we scurried to the top, Eastcott turned around and sat down, looking back over the school. He motioned me to sit down. I complied. As we sat there, gazing over the hillside, I wondered what he was up to. He hadn't really said anything up until this point. All of a sudden, he turns and says, go. He runs over the peak of the hill. I jump up and chase after him. I had never walked off school property during school hours. It wasn't a thing elementary school kids did. I thought, did Escott know where he was going? He was fast. Over the hill, we joined at the sidewalk, out of sight from the school. Not more than 100 meters away was a Sobeys supermarket. That seemed to be where Escott was taking us. As we walked into the Sobeys, we didn't get far. There were people lined up with their carts at the checkouts. Escott just walked over towards them and kind of shimmied through the checkout, snatching several packs of Hubba Bubba bubblegum from the stand exposed to the checkout aisle. I followed him through, keeping my hands to myself. I wasn't going to take anything. I had just witnessed my first crime. I sure as hell wasn't going to tell anybody. I had left school property and gone with Escott to Sobeys and saw him steal bubblegum. And Escott knew that. When we got back to the class, I sat down in the classroom. Escott followed me in a minute after the bell. He had a sinister look on his face as he chewed bubblegum. As he passed my desk, he handed me two packs of Hubba Bubba. Escott had a power and an ability to project that over others that went well beyond his nominal stature. He was fearless and powerful. Did he know something I didn't? The previous year, Escott had caused an uprising in the grade four classroom that ended with several boys heading to the principal's office and getting calls home to their parents, including myself. Using cult-like tactics, 
Eastcott convinced at least a half dozen boys to scratch a mark on their left hand between their index finger and thumb, right over the pad of muscle connecting the two. Eastcott instigated the mass self-mutilation campaign of others through employing a mass peer pressure campaign by labeling the non-compliant as pussies. Eastcott proclaimed the action just before lunch. By mid-afternoon, our teacher, Mrs. P. Ford, had taken notice upon one of the boys submitting his classwork and confirmed her suspicions shortly after by demanding all the boys show her our hands. She rounded up Eastcott's mutilators and we were sent to the principal's office. The principal brought up the old jumping off the bridge example and not doing what others tell you to do. How ironic. The pressure to fit in had commenced in grade four, and it was coming from all directions. Institutional and rogue actors were both fighting for influence over our young minds. No word on whether Eastcott was found guilty in the aftermath. Word goes around fast. I remember one of the kids in my PE class in grade eight SJ. SJ would call me out a thief in the halls of Marriott. While at that school, there were a few things I engaged with. I played trombone in the concert band and junior jazz band. I also enjoyed home economics, shop, and looking back now, appreciate learning how to type on a typewriter. I hit the basketball court hard and focused on playing the game. It allowed me to forget about my problems, my parents, my life and just have fun and be healthy. I tried out for the grade eight boys basketball team and got cut. That was the end of my public school education. After my shoplifting incident that year, my parents pulled me from the school. They said a new private school was opening and took me to take an entrance exam. I got in without issue. There were only 14 students in my grade nine class. At the time the school opened, it only offered kindergarten through grades 9. We were the senior class and would be throughout our time there till our graduation. A truly unique situation. I've always considered myself a back-against-the-wall kind of person. I think it's a curse, you see. I live in a state of paralysis, perhaps a paralysis of overanalysis. It really is worse than it sounds, overanalyzing things. I think it's gotten worse over the years. Okay, maybe it's not that bad, but let me say at least that it has stopped me from doing things that most would just be like, yeah, sure, let's do it. But getting back to having your back against the wall, it seems that if you want to get water out of a rock, then one way might involve the rock against a wall. That reminds me of when I forged my report card because my grade 10 English teacher wrote that I was trying to be cool. I didn't really even care about my grades. Not that some of them weren't changed. 
but being a South Asian son, knowing what my father would say, or moreover, how he would say it, was fear enough for me to change the report card. I think in terms of grades, I might have changed it like 5% at the most. But it was probably more like changing a 74 to a 78 or 9 type thing. I remember I helped someone else in my class for way too cheap, like 75 bucks. Although it was never for the money. That was a cool reaction to an uncool move by one Mr. G. I lost a lot of respect for that English teacher calling me out like that to my parents. He was an older British man who probably should have known what kind of reaction that could cause from my father. He introduced us to Lord of the Flies and a few Shakespeare plays like Romeo and Juliet and Henry V. He was married to an African woman and had spent a large portion of his career living in Africa. Surely he was aware of the third world forms of punishment used by parents. He had mixed race kids and adopted ones. He had lived in a different world and should know what kind of reaction that would arise from my father. Or at least, that's what I thought at the time. He reminded me a little of my father, actually. They had a similar body type. Like a bell curve stood vertically. My report card solution was definitely thinking outside the box and I don't regret forging it one bit. It was a great piece of work. Oddly enough, Mr. G was replaced by a Dr. Mac. Dr. Mac was mid to late 30s, athletic and cool. You could tell the girls in the class had a crush on him. He made books like Catcher in the Rye and The Great Gatsby a little bit more understandable or relatable, perhaps. That was it. Dr. Mac could connect with the students, not like you were a kid, but as an equal on the basis of ideas. Dr. Mac left an impression on me, not necessarily in the classroom at the time. But on the basketball court, Doc had some skills composed of moves like an 80s basketball star and shorts too. Doc had athleticism that you don't expect to see coming out of your English teacher. He had a hop, pivot, pump fake, and shot that all stood out like Hakeem the Dream, but a little taller than me only. As a basketball diehard, it was a pleasure and a challenge to guard the man and watch him play basketball. It's always better to play against someone bigger and stronger if you want to improve at sports. A man's strength and power is superior to a boy's. That was something I lacked. Strength and power.